Welcome to the Weight Solutions for Physicians podcast, the podcast that helps you find solutions for your weight concerns that will last a lifetime. You've got this. This podcast contains general educational information on weight loss for physicians. I am not providing medical advice and listening to this podcast does not create a physician-patient relationship. This podcast does not replace the need for consultation with a licensed professional and no information should be relied upon unless you have obtained specific advice or treatment from myself or another physician. Please review the terms and conditions located at www.weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca before continuing. Welcome to episode 107 of the Weight Solutions for Physicians podcast. I'm your host, Siobhan Key. If you're just joining me, I am an obesity medicine physician and I am a weight loss coach for physicians. My passion is helping physicians who are struggling with stress eating and feeling out of control with how they're eating and not really able to figure it out to the point where it seems to occupy a good portion of their mental energy and mental time throughout the day. I help them find freedom from all that stress. I help them find ways of getting back in control of eating without constantly thinking about it, finding an ease in getting back in control with eating. Now, if that describes you, if you are listening to this and you are just tired of constantly dealing with this feeling of control around certain foods or all food, then I'd encourage you to head on over to weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca forward slash SOS and join my waitlist for my next stress eating SOS group. The group is going to start in January 11th, but if you join the waitlist now, you're going to get access to some exclusive bonus sessions, including one coming up about planning for the holidays. As well as if you are an early bird purchaser. So if you get into Stress Eating SOS early when the doors open, you will actually get an additional week of coaching starting right after the new year. So starting the week of January 4th, you would actually start to get coaching rather than when the official program starts January 11th. And so if you just want this holiday season to be the last one where you have to struggle and not know how to fix this, then I'd encourage you to head over and get on that wait list. I can't wait to see you in there. Now today, I have a really interesting guest. Dr. Katherine Harmon Tumor is joining me today to talk to us about her personal experiences with weight and the health impacts she has experienced with this, as well as her experience with weight loss and how she approaches it now as a wellness coach. She created health, wellness, and weight loss centers through which she does telemedicine coaching and counseling services for people who feel overwhelmed with their weight. And you can find her on her website at chtumor, spelled T-O-O-M-E-R-M-D.com. All right, let's get right into the interview. I really enjoyed this. I think Dr. Tumor is a really inspiring speaker when she talks about her story and how she was able to reverse some very significant illnesses by getting back in touch with her lifestyle changes and getting herself motivated to make those changes. Let's get right to the interview. Welcome to the show, Catherine. I'm so happy to have you here today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. What I would really like to start with is you telling us your story, because I think you have quite an interesting story as a physician who struggled with her own weight. And then we can kind of go from there. But can you let us know who you are and what your story is? Well, I am Dr. Catherine Toomer. I'm a community health and family medicine physician who about three years ago actually left clinical medicine to focus on the parts of medicine that I enjoy the most. And that is pretty much educating people towards health and just kind of guiding them 
more intensely than I was able to do in 15 minute appointments. And so it kind of morphed into coaching, which at the time wasn't as popular as it is now. And so what I do is I use a biopsychosocial approach to helping people maximize their health and wellness using weight loss. And the reason I do that is because that's how I got my own health on track. I had been somewhat athletic growing up, but then started college and, you know, the freshman 15 and then went to med school, the stress of med school. I got married during med school. I started eating like my husband, gained more weight, started residency, stress of residency, gained even more weight, then had my first daughter, my third year of residency, gained a significant amount of weight. And then two and a half years later, had my second daughter. And by that point, my BMI was uh, about 40 by the time I had my second daughter. I'm five feet tall. My joints ached. I couldn't sleep much, (laughs) very well. I'm sure I had sleep apnea, just undiagnosed. And so a month after my second daughter was born, I was on insulin for diabetes and then went into congestive heart failure. And my ejection fraction was 15% at the time. That's scary as a new mom. It was very scary. It was really scary because actually that was a diagnosis that I lost my first patient with. She was 17 years old, went into congestive heart failure. Postpartum too? or Postpartum, yeah. And went into an arrhythmia and we couldn't get her out of it. And so when I got the diagnosis, I was terrified and knew the mortality. It was about 50% within the first year and then 50% from there in the next five. And so I had a toddler, I had a newborn and I was scared, very, very scared. And I had no control really because I couldn't control my heart. And so the only thing I knew how to control was my diabetes. I knew I could reverse it. It actually helped my father reverse his diabetes. Oh, interesting, because what year was this that this was happening to you? I was 36. So this was in 2001. I'm 55 now. Yeah, because back then, that concept of reversing diabetes wasn't really talked like not near what it's talked about now so like how did you stumble upon the ability to reverse diabetes with your dad and then feel confident you could do it for yourself well two things one i went to my med school a biopsychosocial approach to medicine was drummed into us now it's considered functional medicine or integrative medicine which then they didn't differentiate that then i was at the university of florida in gainesville where there's a lot of studies in diabetes going on so just through my training that was always the goal in my training was to try to help people reverse their disease processes. And so diabetes was one of them. And so just studying, my father is an engineer. And so once I told him that diabetes is sort of like a thermostat and it's like a feedback mechanism that you make little changes and it kind of changes your environment, then you make another change, it changes your environment. He jumped right on it and went from being on insulin to not having to take any medication. And it was just through weight loss and his diet. It's so inspiring when that happens. Hey, like it is. I was later to that party from a medicine perspective because it wasn't taught in my medical school. But man, when you do that and you see people come off insulin, like it's so amazing. It really is. And so I knew I could, I mean, he did it. I have his genes. I figured, well, if he could do it, I could do it. And one of the ways that he did it, he showed me was that he was very muscular. And so he just started toning. He walked 
a lot, but he mostly did a lot of just push-ups, sit-ups. And, and so I knew I couldn't exercise though. So I was like, okay, well, I can't do that because of my heart. I could barely walk from one side of the room to another without getting winded. I couldn't brush my teeth standing up. That's how winded I would get. So I knew I had to do it through diet. I learned very quickly I'm not very disciplined and my willpower is next to nothing when it comes to food. I live near my mother-in-law and she's a phenomenal cook. And it's kind of hard to tell your mother-in-law no. <laughs> she makes you something, you're something special and you know it's from love and you're just like, but I really shouldn't eat that. But, you know, so I started figuring out ways of being able to keep my blood sugar low just from food. And so some of it was me teaching my father how to do it and then just not doing it for myself. And one of the things I realized was just, and this was way before ketogenic diets, I just figured out that cutting carbs, adding protein, healthy fats was the way to go and to stick to an eating window. So I was pretty much fasting and eating a ketogenic diet without even, there was no name for it at the time. So I lost 60 pounds in about six months. Now, at that point, were you trying to lose weight or were you more focused on improving your diabetes or both? It was both because I knew that congestive heart failure is your heart having to provide oxygen to your body. Well, the more body I had, the more oxygen it needed to give. And so that meant the more work. So I knew that weight was a component, but I knew that if I got my diabetes under control, the weight would follow. And that's always been my philosophy is find the cause for anything and then focus on the cause. So I knew I needed to lose weight, but I knew that getting my diabetes under control was the way to do it. I think it's one thing to know what you need to do, to know how to do it. But then, like you said, you realized you had poor follow through and not very good willpower. So I think it's a whole other ball of wax of actually overcoming those issues to do it. And sometimes like you had a lot of fear on your side. Sometimes that's not enough, right? For some people, sometimes they can be afraid and still not be able to overcome. So how did you overcome those issues? I told everyone around me so they would hold me accountable. Even my three-year-old would give me my insulin shots. I mean, she asked me to, so I let her. Until this day, she's still not afraid of injections. (laughs) She never was for that reason, but she knew Mommy's not supposed to eat sugar. So she saw me reaching for, you can't eat that. Everyone knew. My husband, I couldn't do much for myself anyway because I was so compromised. So he took over all of the cooking, all of everything. He just got really strict. He's also a physician. So he knew. And then my mother-in-law, who is also diabetic, I said, you know what? We really should all be doing the same thing. And so we just did it together. And then I realized, though, that I still was struggling because I was angry with everyone for keeping me accountable. Yeah, that's I was wondering about that because that's a common (laughs) thing that happens, right? Like we ask people for their help and then can really rankle. Yes, <laughs> and they give it to you. <laughs> yeah. And so that's the whole social part of the biopsychosocial. <laughs> so, but I realized what it was, it was a psychology of it. I understood the biology and I pretty much couldn't do much about that. I mean, it was going to take care of itself. And the sociology part, I used the accountability for that, but I realized that I was depressed. The diagnoses, even if it was brief reactive, I knew that I was depressed. And so I treated my depression. And actually, that's what helped me stay the course. It wasn't enough just to 
eat the way I was supposed to, but I needed an attitude adjustment. And it's very, very hard when you have a newborn and you have a toddler who wants to run around. You can't play with your one child. You can barely take care of your other child and pretty much totally dependent on other people. So I knew the only other thing I could do was take care of the psychological part. And so I did a lot of gratitude writing, but I needed treatment. I took an antidepressant. Yeah. And I think that speaks to how multi-layered weight is, right? Like it's not just the food. There's all sorts of different things that impact it. And I can't imagine what it was like for you going through that with a toddler and a baby and like feeling that your life truly was at threat, but also your independence was truly threatened. I can't imagine like the impact that would have had on you. Plus then you have all the normal newborn stuff, I'm sure of the, like you're not sleeping. (laughs) Not sleeping. I couldn't breastfeed. That was probably the hardest part. I breastfed my oldest daughter until I was pregnant with my second daughter. So almost two and a half years. And the only reason I stopped was because she told me in a complete sentence, mommy, your breast milk tastes funny. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, okay, I think you're a little bit too old to be nursing, sweetheart. (laughs) So I thought, okay. But I expected to do the same with my second and I'd never used formula ever. My older daughter went from breast milk to food. And so she didn't even drink cow's milk. She never drank milk other than mine. So when my second daughter, I was in the ER breastfeeding her for the last time before they gave me digoxin because I couldn't breastfeed after that. And we had no formula because I hadn't researched formula. I didn't know anything about what formulas would be best for her. And so the first week when I was in the hospital, she was actually right next to me. And every day we just tried a different formula to see which one she could tolerate. So that was also very, very difficult. That would have brought its own type of grief. It did. That grief of wanting to breastfeed and not being able to. That I think, and because of postpartum depression, I had nothing to protect me from that after that. And so it was a combination of a heart diagnosis, which often brings depression, just having had a child, which is very common to have depression. And then just having a new diagnosis in general brings on depression and then not being able to take care of myself or my baby. So it was just a lot of psychological punches coming at me at once. And my husband was taking his boards at the time. Oh, geez. Poor him. Like when you think on his side too, he must have been so distracted. He was. He's a radiologist. And so he was taking his oral boards at that point. And yeah. There's so (laughs) So. much that you guys went through. At what point in your weight loss journey did your heart start to improve? Well, I lost 60 pounds rather quickly, like in six months, because I got my diabetes under control pretty rapidly. I would say that within a year, I was able to function in that I was able to cook. Well, after a year, I had to choose activities. So if I cooked one day, I couldn't go grocery shopping and clean my house on the same day. So that was sort of how I would measure because I couldn't go back to work. So I was on medical leave at that point. And so after about a year, I started noticing that I could brush my teeth without sitting down, take a shower, and then cook breakfast. If I took a shower first, I usually had to wait about a couple of hours before I could do anything else because anything using my arms just would tire me out. Especially as physicians, we can be very 
impatient with our own disabilities. <laughs> That's a really long time to be severely restricted in your activities, hey? Well, I didn't feel comfortable until I hit the five-year mark because I just felt like five years, I knew I was out of the woods. But before then, I actually had started exercising. I remember around the three-year mark, I started going to the Y, the local Y, and doing step aerobics. And I would do it just on the ground. I didn't do any of the step stuff. And I could get through about 10 minutes of the class. And then about six months later of doing that, I got through the whole class on the ground, not on a step. And I just burst into tears and everyone in the class was looking at me like, what the heck is wrong with you? <laughs> and I was like, you just don't understand. <laughs> this is like major. And of course, I explained. They're like, oh, gosh, they didn't know. The instructor knew because I wanted her to know that I had a heart condition in case something happened. But no one else in the class knew. And so from that point, my confidence level went up when it came to physical activity. So I started doing more. I realized a lot of what I wasn't doing was out of fear, not so much out of, it was more psychological than physical, I guess that's the best way of putting it. And so after that, that psychological part fell away and I found that I could do more and more. And then sometimes I'd forget. My first cardiologist told me, I said, when will I be well? And he's like, Catherine, come on, you know, I can't answer that. He goes, but I can tell you, you'll know you're well when you forget. And at about five years, I left something upstairs and I was in a hurry. My daughters were strapped into the car. I ran into the house, ran up the stairs, grabbed it and ran back down and then stopped. And I was like, I just ran upstairs. <laughs> I was like, oh gosh, I just ran upstairs. I didn't even think about it. I never would have done that before out of fear that I would have an arrhythmia of some type or I get really short of breath or I wouldn't have been able to do the next activity that I was planning on doing. And so at that point, that's when I started planning to go back into medicine, going back into practice. And my whole world opened up after that. Yeah, like five years is such a long time. And what really impresses me in your story is, like, I know you treated your depression, but it would be really easy to be like dealing with that limitations and not feeling like you can do your normal stuff for that long and just lose motivation at some point. Like five years is a long time to keep the faith and keep going. Hey, it is. And it wasn't always easy. There were days where I did have difficulty getting out of bed. There were days where I just couldn't move. And I couldn't tell always if it was psychological or if it was physical. But being married to a physician, it was also helpful because he got it. He understood that those things happened. But even then, there were still some days where he just would get frustrated because out of his own fear. And then the biggest problem actually I've had, and even now, I never behaved normally. My ejection fraction was 15%. I had uh, pulmonary edema. And my oxygen at the time was 75%, but I never had pedal edema. I had none of the other symptoms. So actually I had gone to a pulmonologist because I was short of breath. My daughter had just had bronchitis. I was worried I had caught bronchitis from her. And so I just went to a colleague. I was at the hospital, one of the physicians at the hospital where I had privileges. And I said, you know, I'm really short of breath, whatever. He did an x-ray and everything. He tells Catherine, you have pneumonia. At the time, my husband was a fellow. And he looked at the x-ray because he was a radiologist. And he said, that looks more like failure to me. He said, that's more of a failure pattern than a pneumonia pattern. And of course, wishing away pathology, I was like, nah. 
I'll take my antibiotics and I'll be fine. But he deferred because he was like, I'm not finished yet. I'll defer to whoever reads the x-ray. Well, we actually never got the report back. I just never followed up. And by the time I did follow up, I was in the ER, (laughs) unable to breathe. So him understanding the pathophysiology of knowing that. And I, again, like I was saying that I never really behaved normally. The only symptom I ever had was shortness of breath, which was severe initially and then slowly got better. And then palpitations, which were really severe and then slowly got better. By the time I hit the seven-year mark, I was very active. My ejection fraction was 60%. I was still on medication and I still am now. The only way I can maintain my ejection fraction is with medication. And I was playing tennis. I started playing tennis. I was never much of a runner, but I tried. (laughs) It didn't last very long, (laughs) but I just became really active. I started doing the activities I did in high school because I figured, you know, if I can get back to that activity level, then I know I'm good. And even with that, as I'm getting older, I found that every five years or so, I've had to readjust to keep my diabetes under control because I consider myself a diabetic regardless of whether I'm taking medication or not. I'm a firm believer that either you have it or you don't. And once you have it, you are. And it's just a matter of whether you're diet controlled or medication controlled. But once a diabetic, always a diabetic. And so I did find that it, it was harder and harder for me to keep my diabetes under control unless I lost more weight. And then I got to a point where it's like, I just don't want to be any smaller. I don't feel strong once I get below a certain weight. And I was just like, I would rather take medication and have my strength than to have to get to a point where I would feel anorexic. I mean, other people would probably look at me and say, not at all, but I just like myself at a certain weight. I feel strongest at a certain weight. And I got to that weight, but I'm finding again now at 55, I'm at that point again. And for full disclosure, with congestive heart failure, you just never know what your prognosis is going to be. And I recently found out that my ejection fraction dropped. I didn't feel it at all. I've been living a very healthy life, been very active, doing pretty well with eating. And so I just did not notice. If I hadn't gone and had an echocardiogram, I never would have known because I just didn't feel it. And so now I'm actually in the process of going down a little bit more because it worked the first time. And so I'm just, we'll see if it works again. And if it doesn't, I'll gain it back because <laughs> I just don't like me. <laughs> Even though I know there's a healthy BMI, for me, I'm somewhat muscular. So my BMI is always a little bit over what's considered normal. And because when I get down to, I just feel weak. I just don't feel strong. And that's a lot of what I teach people also. It's like, it's not the number, it's how you feel. Yeah, totally. That brings me to like your story is so powerful and kind of unimaginable to have walked that path. But how do you take that? And then what tools do you use now when you're working with people on their own weight loss? What things do you find are the most important ones? The ones that I find most important is to learn how to give people verbal hugs. When I had my office, I would just give hugs. I mean, it was just, I was always a hugger. I was never one of those people. It was like, you know, as a doctor, you're not supposed to hug your patient. I cried with my patients. I hugged my patients. I laughed with them, whatever was happening at that moment and whatever I felt comfortable. And I would always feel like if this were my sister I was talking to, what would I do? And if I would hug my sister, then I'm going to hug this person because 
to me, I try to treat everybody like family. It kind of helps me know that I'm doing right by my patients and by my clients. So now that I've gone 100% virtual, I've just shifted. It's the same empathy, but it's just expressed differently. And because I have experienced that level of frustration, that level of fear, that level of feeling overwhelmed, I hear it. The slightest change in someone's voice and I hear it. Or the pause, you ask a question and there's hesitation. And sometimes people aren't even real, don't even realize it. I'll even say, what are you afraid of? I'm not afraid of anything. Well, you paused when I asked you that question. So what was the reason you paused? And then they're like, uh, I said, what flashed to your mind? You know, just asking. And then it turns out there's something that they were afraid of or something that they thought was going to happen and they didn't realize it was a fear reaction. They thought it was something else. And so one of the things that I have learned are all the little tricks we use to protect ourselves from things that are not really real. And you get tired of someone telling you what you can and cannot eat. So suddenly they become the problem, not the fact that I want to eat something I'm not supposed to. And those are things that play into as I'm sure you know, weight loss, because when someone in the family is going through a process, sometimes they swing from one end of the spectrum to the other, and they become almost fanatic in their quest to lose weight. And it affects their relationships with everyone else in the family. What that sets them up for is sabotage. Everyone's like, well, I don't like this person, so I'm going to make sure they stop this process, whether it's beneficial for them or not. And so I always listen for those things because I went through that. I've learned how to go through the things I need to go through without it being obvious to anyone else around me. And it took years sometimes of tweaking things. I'm in South Carolina. Rice is gold in South Carolina. In fact, it's called golden rice. <laughs> Trying to force brown rice onto South Carolinians is like blasphemy. So you learn how to make rice, eat rice in a way so that it doesn't cause problems, but it also doesn't cause problems for anyone else either. And so instead of cooking a big pot of rice, I cook enough so that each person can only get a certain amount anyway, because it's a limited amount and no one notices. They'll just know that there's rice for dinner. They won't notice that they can only have a quarter of a cup or half a cup because that's all there is to have. And so those little tricks of just trying to maintain my process without imposing it on everyone else. Yeah, that's interesting because that's such a big area that so many people struggle with is how do you manage the people around you? And I was thinking when you were saying like the person being fanatical and the family kind of sabotaging, it can go the other way too, right? Where family members can become fanatical about what the person should be doing and then the person sabotages those relationships are so important to look at and figure out how do you want to handle it in the healthiest way possible so that they can eat whatever they want and because they're humans and can choose. And then you can choose what you want and feel best with. It does take some figuring on that. It does. And it's a lot of tweaking. I get you know calls, what's your plan? Whatever yours is, I don't know. I can't tell you <laughs> until we talk. <laughs> then I can tell you what it is. And I do share a lot of my process because everyone's like, you're a weight loss doctor? I'm like, yeah. And yes, my BMI is 25 and not 22, but it was 40, <laughs> 45, and, and it's not anymore. But at the same time, 
part of what my actual business, health, wellness, and weight loss, I kind of threw the weight loss in there to really get people through the door. And then I do a switch because you can't focus on weight. I mean, you can focus on weight, but then it's not maintainable if that's all you focus on, unless focusing on the cause, which is your health and your wellness. And so often what I spend a lot of time doing is helping people realize that the number isn't as important as how they're feeling, but also it's really hard to convince people that health is important. So it's that balance of not feeling like you're selling your soul <laughs> because you're focusing on weight, even though weight's important, because if it's important to the person, it's important. But sometimes it can be frustrating when trying to focus on wins that are, as they say, non-scale victories, or trying to let people know that they've accomplished something pretty fantastic but it may not be a weight thing. It could be just that normally something that would have triggered them or derailed them, suddenly it didn't. And so just kind of paying attention to those things and for myself as well. I mean, this is a constant, as you know, I mean, we're human. We go through processes. We have kids, we have married, their days we're tired. And it's very easy to want to reach for something just to gain energy. And I know Because I still have no willpower when it comes to food. So I just keep triggers out of my house. I cannot see an Oreo cookie and not want to eat it. Like, are you able to limit things like birthday cake would be the classic thing? Like, can you do that and then move on? Or are you needing to stick to pretty much full abstinence? Oh, no, I eat what I want. I just learned our way of doing it. So what I do is essentially I just offset So I've, over the years, I know what's going to make my blood sugar go up. And even some things that are just something as simple as a spaghetti sauce. I'm more sensitive to tomatoes than I am to a cookie. Go figure. And I think it's because of the fat and stuff and the eggs and cookies tend to drop. Whereas I guess with the tomato, it's just more of just like direct. There's nothing stopping it. And even if it's meat sauce, for some reason, tomatoes tend to be one of those things. But I had to learn that over the years. And so I, one of the things I often do is, well, I have done is I would test myself. I'd eat something, wait a minute, and wait a little while, check my blood sugar and record it. Write down what I'd eaten, write down my blood sugar. And especially when it came to things where I technically was cheating, um, that I really should not be eating. But someone's birthday, you can't not celebrate someone's birthday. You don't eat a piece of someone's birthday cake when they're celebrating their birthday. They take it personally. It's not about the cake. It's not. So you take a little sliver. But I know exactly how much I can eat of certain things to know. But of course, it's due trial and error. And for me... Sometimes you say, well, health-wise, that's not really very wise, but psychologically it is, socially it is. And so you have to balance and decide which is more important, having your child sit there happy because mom's sharing in their birthday cake or them looking at you like, don't you love me because aren't you happy? It's my birthday. And so you just kind of figure those things out. If a physician's listening to this, who's kind of where you were, maybe not the heart failure piece, but that like frustrated, like, I don't know what to do. I should have figured this out type of thinking that we as physicians often do. What would your advice be to them? One of the biggest obstacles I see with physicians and other professionals is they ignore the psychological component. They just simply will not address or look at whether depression 
or anxiety or ADHD, which is another that feeds into whether any of that is playing into their behaviors and not only their behaviors, but what their body does with the food once they've eaten it. We know we're under stress. That's a given. And there are ways to relieve that stress. And it's really important to focus on those things as well. But often we'll say is I'm too busy. I don't have enough time. Well, when you give yourself time to relieve your stress, it actually snowballs and gives you time later because you're not sort of ruminating over things because you've got to get stuff done. And so my advice would always be do not underestimate the psychological component of what's happening. Test yourself. We have access to all the screening. Screen yourself. If you don't want to screen, have someone else do it. At least be honest with yourself and just make sure that there's nothing underlying. And then the second component is make sure there's nothing physically underlying. One of the, I wouldn't say the bane of my existence, but I don't like the term borderline diabetes. Again, I'm one of those people that either you're diabetic or you're not. And so I often have people like, don't deny your pathology. Just don't minimize it. If you know your hemoglobin A1C is higher than a certain number, if you know your body's reacting and you know the signs and you know the symptoms, don't ignore it. And don't underestimate how pathophysiology will undermine your efforts. Ignoring the fact that you could be insulin resistant is just going to make the process so much harder. And so not knowing what your insulin levels are and only knowing what your hemoglobin A1C is, is giving you only half the answer. And so you're only going to do half the process. And so I say, use your knowledge, use your information and don't minimize it and don't wish it away. I think that's really good advice. I think we wish things away a Mm -hmm. lot. Oh, yeah. Or tell ourselves we just don't have the time to like, we'll focus on that later when we suddenly have time, right? Like convincing myself I had pneumonia when I knew it was congestive heart failure. I was sitting up to sleep. I could not sleep lying down. I could hear the rattling when I was lying down. And I still convinced myself it wasn't congestive heart failure. And even though I knew the symptoms, I knew it because I treated it. And no fever. <laughs> you know, like, how did I think I had pneumonia when I had no fever? That's why we shouldn't doctor ourselves, right? Exactly. <laughs> it's exactly. distorted when we try to interpret our own symptoms. So, Catherine, can you tell people where they could find you if they want to learn more about what you do? Well, I have a website, chtumormd.com. I'm on Facebook as Catherine Harmon Tumor MD. And those are probably the best places to find me because if anyone wants to get in contact with me, they can from either of those places through Messenger or Facebook. Because sadly, I'm always on Facebook. (laughs) So that's probably a good way to find me. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. I really appreciate you sharing your story because, like I said, it's a powerful one that really speaks to the ability to, even when things seem really dire, to still actually turn it around with lifestyle measures, which is really good. Well, thank you for having me. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. I wanted to just take another opportunity to thank Dr. Toomer for taking the time to come on and be interviewed for the podcast and share her story. I think it's such a powerful story and it really speaks to the ability of individuals to take control over their health by really understanding how to make lifestyle changes. I can't imagine what it was like for her going through everything that she did with her young family. And I appreciate her wisdom and sharing on what's worked for her to maintain this weight loss over the years and to continue to constantly be modifying what she's doing to help manage her health in the best way. 
If you are enjoying this podcast, make sure you hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening so that you get all the newest episodes as soon as they are released. And if you could take the time to leave a review on iTunes or one of the other platforms, I would really appreciate it. It really does help the podcast get found. And I know it takes time out of your day to do it, but I promise you I read everyone and I truly appreciate the time you take to do them. All right. Have a fantastic day, guys. I can't believe tomorrow is December. It feels like this is funny that I'm about to say this. It feels like 2020 is flying by. But it really does. We only have one more month of 2020. All right. Have a fantastic last day of November, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye.